And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, January 29th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our web editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, inside a collaboration between Microsoft and a national laboratory. Plus, Congress returns in full as the clock begins to run out once again on the budget. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, it's not an agency, but it works to transfer vital technology developments out of federal laboratories and into the market. The Federal Lab Consortium encompasses some 300 federal organizations. For an update on 50 years, we turn to the executive director, Paul Zielinski. Paul, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. And the chair of the consortium, Dr. Whitney Hastings. Dr. Hastings, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks for asking us to come today. And, you know, I didn't realize that it's been 50 years of technology transfer. Sometimes we tend to think that all technology was invented last week in Silicon Valley. But, in fact, this has been a technologically fertile country for centuries. And maybe just uh, tell us how the consortium, because everyone's got a day job, except, Paul, you're the only full-time person there at their agencies, in your case, Dr. Hastings, the National Cancer Institute. Tell us about the 50th year here. Yeah, well, this is exciting. Five decades of progress carrying out our mission of promoting tech transfer, educating tech transfer professionals, and and facilitating the partnerships between the federal labs and companies and bringing technologies to the marketplace. Uh, So it's exciting. We're going to celebrate this at our national meeting in April. So that's super excited. It's an annual gathering where we're going to have hundreds of tech transfer professionals all in one place in Dallas, Texas. This conference is a big event for us, and so we've got lots planned to celebrate these 50 years. If you'll go to our website, you'll see a timeline. The past five decades of tech transfer, we'll also have it at our meeting for folks to check out and see all the great things that we've done over the past 50 years. And Paul, of course, the recipient of tech transfer is the marketplace, companies, corporations, and so forth. And would you say that the consortium's main role is maybe unifying the way agencies do this so that it looks cogent to the external people that are the recipients of the transfer, that it's not wildly different from the National Cancer Institute to, you know, some lab somewhere out in, say, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Sure. And that's exactly the point of the consortium. I mean, when you get down to when we talk about technology transfer, you know, you invest your tax dollars in research and development performed by the government, all the different labs and the agencies, they're working on their mission. But, you know, our government doesn't make stuff. You don't buy something from the government, you buy something from a company. So for that research to reach you as a person that paid for it, it has to get transferred. So we transfer it to a company, they make, sell, distribute that material, something you can buy a service you can use. Uh, So there's lots of great and exciting examples of tech transfer, but that's really the heart of it. And like you said, you know, if you're working with the Environmental Protection Agency or NASA or the NIH or the Department of Defense, you know, as the public, you look at it as the government. You want a similar experience and sort of like a cohesive experience. And that's really what we try to do is form this community around all of the professionals in this field. And Whitney, give us an example, say, of something that you've seen where a federally funded development occurred What does it take to get it out into the marketplace so that it's all legal and kosher? (laughs) 
It takes a lot of hard work from our tech transfer professionals and a lot of dedication from the scientists that are at the labs uh, all the way to the companies. I'll give you a couple of examples. Technology is transferred from health and human services that many people are aware of. For example, Gardasil, the HPV vaccine that almost all of your kids at age 11 get these days. So that was the result of technology transferred from the federal labs into companies in the marketplace. Another great example for third world countries, uh, for example, Minafravac, that was an FDA technology where it involved partnerships as well as licensing to get that. And now I think um, there've been millions that have been vaccinated as a result of that great therapy. And what's the essential process? What do people that do this for a living technology transfer for their agencies? Give us the skeleton view anyway of the steps involved. Yeah, absolutely. So it all starts with us protecting our intellectual property, and we do that through patenting in most cases. And so we'll start there. And usually the technology is developed in those early years through the scientists at the individual agencies. Uh, Then we do a little bit of market outreach and we try and find a partner, the right partner to take the technology to the market. Uh, Once we find that partner, we'll execute a licensing agreement. We may also do a collaboration so that the scientists can work with the company while they do that early stage development. And then once that early stage development is done, we release the reins and let the company take it from there. We are speaking with Whitney Hastings. She is the chair of the Federal Lab Consortium and with Paul Zielinski, the executive director. And just to be clear, then, this is work that had to be done by government scientists. That is to say, not work done under contract, say, under a CRADA, where the company develops this technology in the first place. Yeah, it usually starts with the federal scientists coming up with the original idea. There are cases where we do have create a partnership uh, between a company and that federal scientist and new innovations, new intellectual property is developed that might be co-owned, for example. But yeah, the original nugget or first step is the idea and the innovation from the federal scientists. And Paul, what have you noticed over the years in the motivation end of this? I mean, companies want to license technology because they feel they can sell it and make some money. The federal scientists may have developed it out of the goodness of her or his own heart, but yet might feel, well, golly, maybe I should benefit from this a little bit more than just my federal salary and, and the button I get you know, for having transferred something out. I think one of the important things, though, is that actually the work that's done is very mission-oriented at the laboratories. I mean, they're trying to accomplish what they're assigned to do. And then you get these great inventions. Well, you know, you don't accomplish the mission just by having the idea. You accomplish the mission by putting that into action. That's where these partnerships come in, and that's where this transfer comes in. Because all of a sudden, this is something that you can do. You can actually, if you're the Department of Defense, you might buy it, but you have to have somebody produce it. So these things have to exist. That's the key. So the scientists, you know, it's a great idea. We'll transfer it to somebody they can make and sell that product. That's the accomplishment of the mission, actually. And in fact, yes, there is some level of the, any royalties that is shared with the inventors. It's not huge amounts, but it is, a, you know, it's a pretty good incentive. Uh, in order to get them to really participate in the process, identify inventions, and actually, you know, then help us get it to the marketplace. So the federal scientists can share a little bit in it, in what ensues after the transfer. Yeah, there's a percentage that's actually in the log that goes to the uh, scientists as the inventor of the, for any of the royalties that the government takes in. Now, you have to understand, it's not huge amounts of royalties that we take in in all cases. 
Uh, in a few cases, Whitney mentioned, like, for example, a vaccine. Yeah, those are some pretty substantial royalties. That's a lot larger amount of money. But in a lot of cases, it may not be huge amounts of money that comes in. You know, it might actually be a relatively small invention or, you know, a small royalty stream. But it's an important invention nonetheless. Sure. So, um, you know, the amount of money transferred. The idea of the license, though, is sort of like, a, you know, a deed you can get. The company can gather investment itself. Sure. Well, as one of my professors used to say, that small royalty might be better than the jab in the eye with a sharp object. So (laughs) (laughs) on that end. And how has this whole process changed over the years? What are some of the big learnings that have come through the FLC in 50 years of doing technology transfer? But when you look at it, really, I mean, a lot of this even goes back to, you know, World War II and before. But, you know, really what you get down to is you've got this huge capability of research. How do you not just use it to win the war, but win the peace, as it was put? So, you know, you've got that. And then so you get a group of folks from the Department of Defense that form this defense laboratory consortium. It's like, hey, we're all doing the same thing. Can we work together, do the same stuff? So that happened in the early 70s. By the time you get to 1974, our 50-year anniversary, they decided, you know what, let's let the other federal agencies into this consortium as well. You get the Federal Laboratory Consortium. So in 1980, you have two huge pieces of legislation. You get a thing called the Stevenson-Weidler Act that says, look, you, tech transfer is a mission. This is actually part of your mission as a federal agency and as a federal laboratory. So to establish that, you got a thing called the Bayh-Dole Act that works with okay, let's recognize that there are intellectual property and that the world deals in intellectual property. So it established how we work with that. Then you fast forward to 1986, two things happen. We mentioned CRADA's area, Cooperative Research and Development Agreements, public-private partnerships. So that's authorized in 86, as well as actually putting it into law, this thing of Federal Laboratory Consortium. That was an idea. It was people working together out of the goodness of their heart. Now it was suddenly required in 1986. So that's some of the huge milestones that had happened in terms of getting to where we are today. And Whitney, do you find that the existence of the consortium can also help agencies avoid duplicative types of research if everyone knows what people are up to? Oh, absolutely. We actually have collaborations amongst the different agencies on a regular basis. At the national meeting, I mentioned the award ceremony that we'll have where we're going to talk about the past 50 years. One of our awards that we give is interagency partnership, where we're partnering together to accomplish something that has a similar mission or we have a similar goal. So we're always trying to work together. I would say one of my favorite things about being part of the FLC is learning from fellow tech transfer managers. For I can give you a, a concrete example where my agency didn't have as much software. Talk about one of the innovative changes over the past 50 year, how software has really taken off in artificial intelligence. And so, you know, some of the other agencies like the NSA and NASA, they were experts in transferring software out to the marketplace. And so for us in health and human services, we didn't deal with it very much. But now, as you notice, there's tons of software as medical devices. So as a result of that, You know, I learned from my tech transfer colleagues what's the best practice in transferring that to companies, to the public, open source software type technology. So, so yeah, we're learning from each other all the time. That's an important point then. There's no real boilerplate process for all of technology transfer. Software or an artificial intelligence application is one thing, but if you develop a new metal alloy, transferring that's a whole different 
process, or maybe the same process, but a different set of parameters. Yeah. Another example is 3D printing. New innovation. Now we can 3D print cells. It's amazing. All right. And I guess my final question is, well, I'll make an analogy. Rulemaking by federal agencies. That's what hundreds of agencies also do. And the federal rulemaking process, cumbersome as it might seem, is actually a model for many other nations. And scientists such as yourself, uh, Dr. Hastings, do interact with colleagues internationally. What's the international view of the FLC? And do you find the United States is a model in the technology transfer area as well? I'd say we're a pretty good model. We were established early on compared to some of the other countries. And so we've had some ambassadors come and visit us here at FLC to learn a little bit more about how we do tech transfers, some of the legislation and legal requirements. We are the federal laboratory consortium for the U.S. And so our labs are comprised of the 300 plus federal laboratories here. And those are our members and constituents that we serve. But we're always happy to be a role model to others and bring others in and feel free to uh, learn from what we've done in the past. All right, Paul, any final comments as the 50th year dawns here? Well, we're very excited about this last 50 years and very excited about moving forward in the future. As Whitney said, we've got a big event coming up with our national meeting, so we're looking forward to inviting people in. It's all about the networking, and that's really part of the tech transfer. Paul Zielinski is Executive Director of the Federal Laboratory Consortium. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. And Dr. Whitney Hastings is the Consortium Chair working out of the National Cancer Institute. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Happy to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Transfer the Federal Drive to your mobile device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, inside that collaboration between Microsoft and one of the national laboratories. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Pacific Northwest National Laboratory has turned to Microsoft for high-performance computing in what it calls a multi-year collaboration. The lab and the software giant will apply artificial intelligence to speed up research in clean energy. Here with the details, PNNL Associate Director and its Chief Digital Officer, Brian Abrahamson. Mr. Abrahamson, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And that's a couple extra syllables in there. <laughs> a tough one to do. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. Well, give us the domain in which this collaboration is occurring. I mean, it's energy, but what about energy? Yeah. So right now, we think there's just tremendous potential in the use of AI for science. And the collaboration right now is really focused on advancing and accelerating scientific discovery in the field of chemistry and material science. And those are two scientific fields that are really key to the discovery of new materials for batteries and energy storage and such. Yeah, batteries are a big problem because it's sort of a technology that moves along analog, and we need step function increase in battery capability to really realize these uh, dreams of nirvana, fair to say. That's exactly right. You know, I, I think the discovery of new battery materials and the chemistry needed for those is part of our initial focus in this collaboration with Microsoft. And you know, part of that is you know, reducing dependency on elements like lithium. 
which can be you know difficult to obtain, especially in the quantities that the world needs it. When you think about you know the use of grid scale batteries to uh, incorporate renewable energies into the power grid and other such use cases. And there's also the fact that batteries, as we know them now, eventually wear out in a way that's not all that economic. Correct. Yes. They have a limited lifespan. And as we think about new battery chemistries that can improve both the density of what can be stored, the lifespan of those batteries, the accessibility of the materials used to produce the batteries, it's, that's all important. All right. And now Microsoft is joining you. Let's talk about the arrangement first. Do you have a CRADA with them? Do you have a contract? How is this structured? You know, at the highest level, what we've done is we've signed an MOU, a memorandum of understanding with Microsoft. It is for a multi-year collaboration where we are really starting with the exploration of using AI to accelerate discovery in chemistry and material science, but we intend to move beyond that into other fields. And we have, from a structure perspective, that we then have a diverse set of projects underneath that that are advancing those goals. So, you know, as an example, we have certain engagements with the Department of Energy that we're bringing this collaboration to bear to advance some of those outcomes. Microsoft has some internal investments that they're making, and we as a national laboratory have some internal investments that we're making to advance the goals. So there really is a portfolio of projects, if you will, underneath this broader multi-year MOU. And I know what PNNL brings to this. You've got lots of scientists and people that know material science and know energy science and so forth. Microsoft writes code. (laughs) So what are they bringing to it? You know, several things. When you think about the convergence of high-performance computing, advanced artificial intelligence models in the cloud, right, there's really a very beautiful convergence that's happening there that Microsoft brings, you know, in case of chemistry and material science, right, they're, they're delivering that through the Azure Quantum Elements platform, which is something that we're working alongside of them to kind of prove out and to leverage. You know, the, the Azure cloud, some of the advanced AI models and some of the, the, the high-performance compute necessary to run those AI models effectively, you know, all are part of the equation. And coupling that with some of the scientific expertise that irrespective of the compute, right, that scientific expertise still remains essential to the development of these new materials and, and processes. And some of the uh, the AI models are specifically trained on science. And so, you know, you think about generic models, large language models, chat, GPT, et cetera, trained on lots of content on the Internet, right? We're bringing to bear in this partnership also models that are trained specifically on scientific content in order to help advance. We're speaking with Brian Abrahamson. He's the Chief Digital Officer and Associate Director of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Give us an example. I mean, if you're looking for a new storage, there's anodes and diodes, and what's the other end of a battery besides the anode? The, the path- anodes, cathodes, the cathode. electrolytes. Yes. I was thinking of yes. cathode. And is it a matter of like modeling molecules, for example, and behaviors that you can do with a supercomputer? Give us an example of how this might work. So, you know, traditionally, there's a lot of trial and error, kind of an Edisonian approach to the discovery of some of these new materials. And to the extent that we can transition some of that upfront work to more computational simulation, leveraging artificial intelligence to help narrow down the playing field of kind of the universe of elements and structures that can be explored. And, you know, in this case, right, we went from 30-something million potential elements and structures to be evaluated, the artificial intelligence helped narrow that playing field significantly to several dozen that we could then use some of our human expertise to then evaluate and then start to synthesize 
candidate materials in the laboratory. So it literally is just an acceleration of what otherwise is a laborious process. Yes, because if you had, say, 30 million potential structures, and I'm presuming you mean molecular structures at this level of material research is beyond, you know, how far does this piece of steel bend, then there's no way that humans could test 30 million of them. So possibly nothing would happen if you couldn't narrow it down. Correct. You're talking decades and decades. And so this is where that simulation and, and, and simulation and, and leveraging computation is nothing new in this. It's the addition of some of these more advanced artificial intelligence models that can help to improve some of that upfront simulation and computational work. And is it also a vendor that has the computational capability in its own cloud versus the traditional way of national labs and other federal elements building bespoke supercomputers? Yeah, you know, we think of that as it's not an either or, it's an and. We think the role of high-performance computing in its traditional capacities, we think of some of the leadership class computing facilities at the DOE play an incredibly important role in scientific discovery. In addition to that, right, we think some of the, you know, the hyperscalers, people like Microsoft with, you know, significant horsepower also have a lot to offer in bringing some of those models and computing to bear. So really, it's, it's an and for us. And for those at the lab that absolutely sure they have a structure they want to work on and develop, you might have unlimited demand, but not even this resource is not unlimited. So how do you parcel out who gets to do what? You know, that's a big part of what this multi-year collaboration is about is, one, it's testing out and creating proof points of progress with some of these new AI models, you know, running in the cloud. But secondly, it's also about improving the accessibility of those models and those computing environments to the scientific community and, and finding ways to do that. You know, that's what's one thing that I think a lot of scientists struggle with is sometimes with a lot of the computing that's available, there are queues. You're, you're waiting. Uh, there's a lot of demand for those resources. And to the extent we can use the cloud to help create additional capacity for scientific research, we think there's a significant benefit in that. And will Microsoft have people on hand, for example, to say, well, here's how we can run this model, or this is the AI model that probably would give you the best answer or something like that? Absolutely. Microsoft is bringing some deep expertise in developing some of the AI and machine learning models that have been trained on scientific literature and content, and then surfacing those through their Azure cloud. And then we're applying those to some of our domain-specific challenges, right, in chemistry and material science that we have as a national laboratory in terms of our goals and our mission around, you know, a clean energy future. And is Microsoft getting money for this? Are they getting the intellectual property? I mean, there's an exchange of funds, fair to say? Yeah, I think for both organizations, I mean, you know, clearly Microsoft has commercial interests in licensing technology to help do this work. You know, this collaboration is really about applying some of those technologies to our mission and iterating on that together as we move it forward. And to the extent we can accelerate kind of our mission outcomes and help create a tool and a capability that can be used by the the broader scientific community, we we, we think there's a win-win there. So ultimately, this could feed your technology transfer process. Absolutely. You know, to the extent that discoveries are made that could be scaled up by industry and whatnot, that's a, that's a big part of what the national laboratories do. You know, we don't always bring things to industry scale, right? We do that technology transfer to let others do that. And by the way, is one area, getting back to the research itself, batteries that are power dense but not weight dense? Because from what I've seen, electric cars and these pickup trucks coming, some of them would collapse your garage floor. And all they do is use their battery up to move their batteries around, basically, is what they're doing. Absolutely. When you think about the density of the materials, I mean, there's a lot of weight involved. And to the extent that there's opportunities to discover materials that have different characteristics that can improve upon that, right? You know, I think the the future will tell us. But, uh, you know, all all those things are, are certainly in play. 
Brian Abrahamson is the Chief Digital Officer and Associate Director of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. You bet. Thanks for having us. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Defense Intelligence Agency is updating a network crucial to the government-wide intelligence community. But first, Congress returns in full as the clock begins to run out once again on the budget. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The House and Senate are both in session this week, but the House is only around for this week and next before taking another two-week recess, which brings Congress right up to the next federal funding deadline. If this feels unpleasantly familiar, well, it does to some of the members, too. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And yeah, I mean, it seems like every time they push out another CR deadline, it comes around pretty quick. Right. It seems like we're reliving a bad television episode over and over again, right? Every few months, we seem to be saying, here's the next deadline. And then Sure enough, here another deadline comes. So there is a lot of concern right now, even though they haven't really done much, and that is part of the concern, that they haven't really moved much at all on these 12 appropriations bills that they've been talking about, of course, all through last year, past blowing the October 1st deadline, and now here we are uh, heading our way to the March 1st deadline. One of the people that I talked to about this was Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. He is one of the lawmakers that worries that they're going to end up basically where they were at the last deadline. Can they really get these 12 appropriations bills passed at a time when the House margin is even thinner than it was under House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? Uh, here's what some of the things that he said to me. Speaker Johnson definitely doesn't want to shut the government down. That's a positive. But it is a lot of work to get done. We have to do the supplemental, and we really need to do that before the Senate leaves for recess. And we need to get the appropriations bill done by early March. I believe we will, but your question was, do you have any concerns about it? And the answer is, yeah, I have concerns. So, yes, he is concerned. Now, Senator Kane says he's become smart enough not to try to predict what the House will do. But there is clearly a lot of worry on the Senate side what the House will do. Uh, House Speaker uh, Johnson likes to cite that they have close to 80 percent of the bills done. Uh, but what he does not mention when he cites what's already been done is the fact that there were many bills uh, in the past year that the House was unable to even get past the procedural step of the rule to get it to the floor. So it's really hard to see exactly what has changed. We'll have to see if uh, the conservatives back off a little bit on him or whether they intensify and put more pressure on this speaker who's really still feeling his way around this appropriations process. Yeah, you wonder if they understand how normal people look at all this and what the reaction is from the outside. All right, given everything that's going on with Ukraine, with the Israel situation, and of course the whole debate on the border crisis. Is the budget even in their minds as they return this week? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I think it's on the back burner, oddly enough, even though this deadline is looming within just a little over a month. The supplemental, the huge foreign aid package, along with this border deal that they've been trying to reach, has really sucked all the oxygen out of the U.S. Senate right now. And even though there is work behind the scenes in connection with the appropriations bills, uh, unfortunately uh, for a lot of people who want to see more progress on the budget, uh, 
this is going to take some time, and I think it's going to eat up a lot more time this week, uh, especially because we had this mini-drama last week where Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated at one point that they might have to separate the deal on the border with Ukraine, and he has been a big supporter, as you know, of Ukraine funding. But then he kind of walked it back the next day and said he's still hoping for a deal. So they're still trying to grind out these negotiations on the border deal and still try to secure this huge over $100 billion foreign aid package, including the money for Israel and Ukraine. And I think that's going to dominate this week as in the background we try to get more progress on these appropriations bills. Yeah, and it's a weird effect that the Trump trials and the Trump emergence, you know, from New Hampshire and Iowa seems to have gravitational effect on Congress, which is a little weird because he's not in office and they still are. Right. It's really amazing when you think of the fact that he is not in elected office. He hasn't even really been uh, made the nominee of the Republican Party, although it's certainly going that way. But he has essentially frozen the House on this issue. The House Republicans have basically indicated that no matter what deal comes out, they are likely to reject it. And we still don't even know the full details of what's going to come out of this deal. Now, the Senate supporters of the agreement hope that it'll come out this week and that they will eventually get a vote on it and that they can somehow put some pressure on the House by showing that it's a real bipartisan deal and that there are parts of the agreement that everybody can go for. But uh, former Vice President... Former President Trump has indicated he's not going for any kind of deal. He just thinks that it's going to be a, a victory for President Biden. So it's really hard to see that this would even get beyond the Senate, even if it gets that far. Crazy. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And switching gears here for a moment, there is effort from some members on the Hill to try to get more federal employees back in their offices more frequently. Right. And one of those people is Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. She has been very active in trying to get federal employees back into their offices over the last several months. And really, ever since the uh, pandemic started to wind down, her latest tactic is essentially to try to shame the agency heads of various federal agencies. Uh, This past week, she uh, shouted out about a variety of things, including the fact that, of course, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was out. He was sick for several days before the president knew about it. Uh, She basically says there needs to be more accountability on the part of agency heads. She wants every agency head's schedule posted. So in her words, that taxpayers know who is showing up for work. Another example she points to is the head of GSA, who spent a large time away from Washington in Missouri. Uh, Basically, she wants to get all of these agency heads on the same page and then at the lower level is still putting a lot of pressure on these federal departments to try to get more and more people back. Uh, As we've talked about, the White House has tried to make a push to get people back as well, but it still hasn't moved as quickly as a lot of the advocates, at least on Capitol Hill, had hoped for. And it's interesting because the Office of Management and Budget, that is the White House, you know, have issued reports on how effective teleworking is and how the level of teleworking has gone down slightly in 23 versus 22. So I think there's kind of two minds there. One, you know, from a management point of view, I think they'd like people back. But on the other hand, the unions are pushing back and they have support from the unions otherwise politically. So it's a little bit of a dilemma, I think. 
Yeah, I think it's almost kind of turned upside down because uh, you well know all of these battles over the years of trying to get agencies to be more active with telework. Uh, Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly has been one of those who's been very active in trying to push agencies to make sure that people could work for home. And this was just a huge issue over the last several years. And then the pandemic now coming out of it has really changed things. As you point out, it's very interesting how everything is kind of flipped around. And a final issue coming up this week is the Senate Finance Committee is kind of getting deep into the technology knickers of the IRS. <laughs> that is for sure. We're talking now about IRS barcodes, and it sounds like it's something real simple. You know, hey, I go to the grocery store, it happens all the time. But there are no barcodes in connection with IRS filings. And when you think of the incredible amount of paperwork and electronic financial records that go through the IRS, it is pretty amazing that there isn't a more efficient way to get things through. So there is bipartisan legislation coming through the Senate Finance Committee that would essentially require barcodes on everything. This has been introduced by Senators Tom Carper of Delaware and Todd Young of Indiana. And what they really want to do is get barcodes on everything so that uh, this huge amount of paperwork, because as you know, the IRS still deals with a lot of paper, would at least allow them to move things through more quickly. Because as we've talked about over the years, you know, whether it's bad signatures or, or things on paperwork that just can't be figured out, there's a lot of plugs in the whole system that hold things up. Now, on the brighter side, the IRS has been making a lot of progress related to, to that backlog that they had during the pandemic. Uh, but this is just another example of lawmakers trying to nudge the IRS along, of course, also with that big amount of billions of dollars that was approved recently so that the IRS can uh, modernize a lot of its IT equipment. Yeah, I think a lot of their ability to get those backlogs done is brute force. That is just hiring bodies to process it by hand. Right. There's just really not enough people right now, and the IRS has acknowledged that. And then when you combine that with the technological issues, it just still creates a lot of problems. Now, there's been, again, a lot of progress in the last year or so. Certainly, uh, this is something that we're all thinking about as the uh, taxes come due in the next coming months. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the DIA is updating a network crucial to the government-wide intelligence community. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Defense Intelligence Agency is upgrading the government's global top-secret intelligence network, it's called the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System, or JWICS. More than just a new bunch of routers and switches, DIA is also putting a big priority on securing JWICS from both outside hackers and inside threats. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the DIA's Chief Information Officer, Doug Casa. We've traditionally done an initial assessment of those agencies and locations that want to connect to JWICS, that have a requirement to connect to JWICS. And that started with just a single security assessment. And we've moved that to continuous assessments now. And we have what we call the JWIC Cyber Inspection Program that we've stood up. And we've completed this year several dozen inspections of existing users' site locations of JWICs. And that goes through the full end-to-end realm of cybersecurity. Everything from how user accounts are managed 
uh, to how hardware is managed in the sense of making sure that technical parameters and guidelines are implemented and patching is done. But beyond that, it also goes to things like, is there insider threat monitoring? How effective is it? You know, are all of the policies that are defined by not just the DOD, but IC being followed when it comes to cybersecurity? And so that's been a combination of a virtual inspection program, in many cases, red teams, where we actually are looking at, is you know that penetrable from not just what do you look at it from like an adversary aspect, but for like an insider threat aspect of is there a, a response capability and how well does that response capability work? So we're actually actively testing that as part of our inspection process. When we look to the future, though, and we're going to start this within the next year, as you know, from National Security Memorandum 8 that defines the requirements for zero trust for federal agencies. And so our inspection program is going to also incorporate those requirements into it to where we're going to look at the maturity of agencies as they proceed down the various pillars of zero trust, the seven in all, really starting with the data pillar of how well are agencies managing things like comply to connect within their network domains, their local network domains that connect to JWIC. So that's been a big focus of us this past year. And then the third piece of that is getting to where a lot would consider it more of the AI realm of the automation of network management. So things like software-defined networking, network segmentation to where when an issue is identified, a performance issue, as an example, we have the automated routing to a more efficient and effective route for a network path, where that's a been a very manual process in the past of you know, failing over to other circuits or isolating networks that might need to be isolated that goes into more of an automated fashion through software-defined networking. And that, that's really where we're, we're headed in that third phase of JWIX. Uh, but we made a ton of progress in that. So uh, we're, we're very excited that, that that's continued. And uh, I mean, I will say when I first started this job six years ago, I would say like 80% of my time was you know, involved in troubleshooting network connectivity issues. And, you know, since we've made a lot of these upgrades, especially on the technology refresh and getting some of that old hardware replaced, now it can really focus on the future and where we need to go. Yeah, I remember when we spoke last year, it seemed like so much of the effort was just around replacing things that probably should have been replaced maybe five mm-hmm. years ago or so. Yep. And so yep. you're well underway and, and catching up. And now it sounds as if you're turning toward more of the future, zero trust, right. automated automated network paths, things like that. Yeah. You know, IT is a lot like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you have your, you know, your basic needs, your foundation set, you can think about the future and how you need to involve. And that's really essential within IT. It's never static, right? It's never a set and forget of I implement something and then I just let it coast along for years and years, right? As new technology comes out, as new cybersecurity threats come out, as an example, we've got to continue to evolve. And now that we've got that foundation in place, we can start to think about, okay, now what does the future look like and where do we need to go? I wanted to follow up on some things you mentioned around cybersecurity, uh, the cyber inspection program. That sounds as if it's a more active look at everyone who's connecting to the top secret network. Right. Is that is that fair to say instead of just sending out, hey, here's the standard you have to meet, <laughs> make sure you do right. it, you're actually testing them against We're all these at, exactly, right? As the old adage goes, what gets graded gets done. And so you you may have heard from JFHQ Doden their command cyber readiness inspections, their CCRI model that they do for the unclassified and secret fabrics 
we're essentially doing a very similar model. In fact, we partner with JFHQ Doden in our JWIX inspections to make sure that we're sharing information so we have complete visibility of the posture of IC networks from end to end. So they are a part of our JWIX inspection processes as well. But that's exactly right. We not only set the standards and policy, it's actually virtually and physically following up, which includes on-site site visits to where we do visual inspections to ensure that the policy is implemented in the spirit that it needs to be implemented. And where it becomes a challenge is, is that JWIX is not just for the intelligence community or DOD. There are many other federal partners that, that use JWIX. You know, and when you all add it all up, it's probably well over a million users at the end of the day. Each one of those areas of the federal government, whether it's, you know, in the ICDOD or other domestic agencies, they also have policies that they have to follow, right, within their own communities. And so it's making sure that JWICs, especially the intelligence community policy, is being followed and implemented and all the parameters of that. You know, there are broad policies, as I mentioned, like NSM-8 for zero trust that we all have to follow, but then there are also unique requirements under IC and DOD that have to get implemented to be able to connect and remain connected to JWICs. And I compare JWICs like a highway, like the the beltway of networks that you use to, to go around the community. And then each exit is a separate, you know, town but in this analogy, a local area network of those agencies, right? So they're managing those specific local area networks, not only in accordance with you know, their agency requirements, but the requirements we have for remaining connected to JWIX as an intelligence network. Our inspections really ensure that as our policy changes, as the standards change, that all of those agencies are remaining compliant with those requirements. And yeah, I mean, following up on that, I mean, I have to ask this question. Over the last year, there's been a lot of talk about just the who should have access to that top secret network, how much access should be granted, and how do you monitor that access because of the right. Discord leaks? I mean, ha- have those features around insider threats and the push towards zero trust has priority and the resources, things like that kind of increased because of that over the last year? I would say it's it's definitely increased in terms of priority. Insider threats is always, you know, a significant requirement of the intelligence community and DOD. As we think about zero trust, it's it's the entitlements, that data pillar that really comes into play. And that's core of what we are going to be and what we are assessing under the JWIX inspection program is our users – Within those local area networks, again, JWIX is the highway, right? We don't have users on JWIX. You don't log into JWIX. You log in to a smaller local area network that connects to that JWIX highway to those other local area networks around the community. And those entitlements of the users and their accesses are managed within those local area networks. But zero trust really takes it to the next level where traditionally we think about access in terms of do you have a security clearance as an example but when it comes down to need to know what data you look at that really comes down into the data management standards that we have to implement in terms of how data is tagged in terms of who should have the need to see that and to what extent should they have access to see that information and that's where we are really relying on elements like odni and lori wade the cdo to help us define what those data standards are in the CDAO uh, on the DOD side and DOD CIO for 
how do those entitlements need to be defined so then we can implement those within our local area networks and our JWICS inspection program will, will assess the extent to which those data standards, metadata standards are being defined and applied to all of the repositories around the community. You know, traditionally we have only looked at, are you cleared to see something? But when it comes down to a need to know that really relies on data tagging standards which is going to take some time to do. Uh, many agencies are well underway, but certainly the, the core of the zero trust pillar for data, it's the entitlements and getting that implemented across. You know, the, net, the network gives you access. The network itself doesn't define how that access actually occurs. Chief Information Officer Doug Casa of the Defense Intelligence Agency speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Find more episodes of Inside the IC at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Air Force is sounding the alarm about operating under a year-long continuing resolution. Should that be what Congress finally coughs up? A senior Air Force official says the consequences would be catastrophic if Congress does not pass a 2024 budget. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more with us. What would the impact be, they're saying, and who's saying it? For the Air Force and the Defense Department at large, getting another short-term bill is frustrating, and it stops the military from starting new programs or making progress on their current initiatives. Now, if Congress ends up funding the government through a continuing resolution for the remainder of the year, the Air Force would end up losing $13 billion in buying power. And on top of it, there is this mechanism when Congress doesn't pass appropriation bills, it triggers a 1% cut from the budget, which means that the Air Force would be operating at the 2023 budget levels minus 1%. So hence the $13 billion number. And just to put more numbers on it, a year-long continuing resolution would affect the Space Force the most. The Space Force would lose around $2.6 billion in research dollars. The measure would impact seven national security space launches. It would cancel 34 construction projects. The Air Force would lose around $1.4 billion in research, test, and development dollars. And here's acting undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. That's what she said about a year-long continuing resolution. If we don't get the appropriations, we have a full year CR or even worse, go to the uh, FRA levels, which get to FY23 minus 1%. And I can go into some of the details of that, which are, are really pretty catastrophic. And I don't think there's been enough discussion about some of those impacts. And what programs did she feel would be the most impacted by a full year CR? As of right now, there are about 100 initiatives that remain on hold until Congress passes the 2024 budget. And a lot of those, um, I think around 19, those are modernization initiatives. Jones mentioned that their Agile Combat Employment, which is an initiative, uh, it's supposed to improve their ability to operate in the Indo-PACOM region. That program got a significant budget boost in the 2024 proposal, in the 2024 request. But right now, they can't 
can bring those investments up to the levels that they had planned. Another one is their collaborative combat aircraft program. They're really excited about it. It lets them test concepts around autonomous and manned unmanned aircraft teaming. For now, they can't really move into the next stages of production. But these are just a couple of examples. But CR would have impacts across the board. Here's the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs, Lieutenant General Rick Moore. Military construction impacts the places where airmen work, the places where they live. It impacts families. It's really difficult to quantify some of those things, uh, but I think anybody that you ask about what they think about 2013 and how their workforce continues to feel about 2013, it's a decade later and we're still not past that. These have lasting impacts, these kind of uh, implemented penalties. It, It will take us a long time to get past this and the combat capability that we need to field in order to stay relevant and to try and keep up with the pacing threat, they're not possible under fiscal guidance like this. And there's one more factor, Anastasia, and that is this 5.2% pay raise for troops. This is coming regardless of what happens with the budget, just as it is for other federal employees. And what does that mean for these programs? Yeah, they're already absorbing that cost, but it would mean cutting enlistment bonuses and the recruiting environment is already challenging. Also, General Charles Brown, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said in an open letter that a year-long continuing resolution would leave a $5.8 billion gap in military personnel accounts. Here's Acting Undersecretary of the Air Force, Kirsten Jones. Because of the fact that we've had a really historic increase in our pay for this year, both military and civilian, we've had to absorb that already starting at the beginning of this calendar year. And so that requires us to make even bigger impacts in the non-pay areas. That was Acting Undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. All right. So the Air Force complaining, and rightfully so, that they can't get by with a CR. And what about the other armed services? Have we heard from them as much yet? Yes. The Navy would lose around $1.5 billion in their research and development programs. It would also lose around $2.4 billion for things like electronics, ship improvements, and other miscellaneous equipment. Also, a classified special access program would lose on $1.1 billion. But actually, the Army's research budget would go up if we were to operate under year-long CRs. Interesting. Well, so a lot of effects there. We've got one more month, and they've got to decide. And later on in this hour, we'll hear from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller has the rundown on what exactly is happening in Congress this week and the next week. In the meantime, Anastasia Obis of Federal News Network, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And of course, not only a year-long CR is threatened, but also, once again, the possibility of a government shutdown in another month. Tomorrow, we'll hear from Pamela Richards. She is the president of Federally Employed Women. Here's a preview of what we'll be hearing about her opinion and the opinion of federally employed women on the possibility of a shutdown. With the government shutdown, uh, it affects women because some women with the single-parent households They are affected by possibility of furlough, possibility of not being able to take care of their financial responsibilities, not being able to take care of their child care uh, for their their child. So it affects a lot when it comes to our our women and, and our membership. 
So what's your message to Congress then? What would you have them do? So one thing we would like for them to do is, as you've already stated, is to move past it and pass a budget that will allow for us to continue to work as uh, federal employed women. Last fall, few submitted a request to Congress imploring them to act on one of their options to end the entire annual government shutdown process. And at that time, there were several uh, avenues put forward to get rid of those temporary stop gaps, get rid of the whole shutdown conversation. And obviously that did not happen, but we would love for a bipartisan agreement to take place to end the government shutdown. And I cannot speak for all federal managers, but I am certain that many would agree with me on this, or federally employed women on that. And a lot of federally employed women are not managers, and therefore they are at the lower levels of the pay scale. And that's much more disproportionately difficult for people that don't earn that much to be out of work, even though the paycheck will come eventually. During the time there is no paycheck, it can be really difficult. Right, right. And those that are at, well, let's just say the bottom of the total pole, but you're lower level GS workers, this has created uh, a heavy financial impact on them, a burden for them as it relates to having to worry about a government shutdown from year to year. And now, of course, the government will be in a fresh continuing resolution, this one lasting till March, operating under the CR year after year. That's, I think the general public doesn't understand why that's difficult for those trying to keep the government operating on a day-to-day basis. Tell us how it affects things. I'll look at it from a human capital piece. Every day, the federal government employees work hard to run the operations, and regardless of the political climate, putting their livelihoods on the line is unconscionable. There are two different deadlines that are affecting two sets of workers, and they are associated with budgets. This creates major inequities as you watch uh, operations unfold. And that's Pamela Richards, the president of Federally Employed Women. Hear the interview in its entirety tomorrow. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 